So we are in another week of our series, The Good Initiative. If this is your first week being here and you've missed uh, the past couple of weeks for whatever you were out, uh, if you would just raise your hand, we're going to be handing out these guidebooks. And uh, these are for you to, it's got a uh, place for you to take notes for the sermon. Uh, it talks about our vision and where we're headed as a church. It's a, it's a fantastic guide. And so just raise your hands up high and they will come and hand those to you. Uh, and so we're in the good initiative where we are expecting the good, proclaiming the good, and doing, seeking to do good. And so over the next three to five years, we are raising money to do incredible things in our area. One being a building for us, another being uh, to renovate our center of teaching and healing. Uh, we're going to do some expansion in some other areas, some staffing and different things so that we can reach more and more people and help people take their next step towards Christ. And so I'm super excited about it. And uh, we're in week three. We're continuing in the book of 2 Corinthians. And so if you've got your Bibles, you can open up there. And I think it's page 43 in the guidebook. So this is 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, and we'll be going all the way through 8. And uh, Paul is writing a letter to the church of Corinth. Let's jump in. He says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So this is the principle of sowing and reaping or reaping what you sow. And so he, he says, hey, listen up. Here's the point. Whoever sows sparingly a little is going to reap a little. Whoever reaps or sows a lot of seed in a field will reap a large harvest. So that's the picture. There's something I want to do before we dive into this text. I want to ground this principle, this scripture in the ideology of Christianity and not our culture. Many of you are familiar with this principle, but it's very easy to import ideas in our culture, other religions, into what this means and how it plays out in our lives. And so here's the question I want to start with. Is reaping what you sow the same as karma? Right? Is reaping what you sow the same as karma? Now, you might immediately go, well, no, I don't think, right? Because there is some similarities, but it is drastically different. It's different in origin, it's different in intent, motive, purpose, end result is different. But oftentimes we import the idea of karma into the idea of reaping what you sow. And so I want to break that down before we dive into the context here. I just want to make sure we're all on the same page. Many of us have different backgrounds. We hear different things, right? And so I just want to make sure we're all together. So let's talk about the two differences. Let's talk about the source or the belief, the origin of karma. Karma has Hindu roots right? The first time it's mentioned, I got this as I did a deep dive and some people who have looked more into this. Uh, the first time it's mentioned is in the Rig Veda. It's the oldest Hindu document. So that's the first time it's mentioned there. And so the origin is Hindu roots. Christianity, however, talks about sowing and reaping, like Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whoever for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. In other words, if you sow into your flesh, it's going to end in destruction. It's going to end in death. But 
The one who sows to the Spirit will notice the origin, notice where the power and the strength and the change comes from. But to the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So what is the belief, what's the ideology, especially practically behind karma? What is it? It's the idea that if you do good, you will receive good. And if you do bad, you will receive bad. And they go into rebirths and recycles of life and all that. We're not going to get into that. But the idea is if you receive something bad today, it's because of something bad, ill, evil, maybe even say dumb, that you did in the past, right? And it brings into your future. And if you sow in or do a lot of good things, then guess what? Your life's going to be pretty great, maybe even now, but definitely in the life to come. So it's this works-based religion. It's this, I have to do good in order to receive good. And if I do bad instead, if my bad outweighs my good, then man, it's going to be bad news for me later on. Almost every other religion apart from Christ believes this, promotes this, talks about it. But that's not what Paul is talking about in Corinthians. That's not what the Bible is talking about when it talks about reaping what you sow. Right? I mean, I mean, this idea of, of karma, I just want to put it in practical terms for you. Because you can go, yeah, I think I know this. How many of you use the word, though? Like, I'll give you, for instance, I love playing with my daughters, hanging out with them. We do all kinds of stuff together. One of the things I love to do is scare them. It just brings me joy. I don't know if any of you dads out there, it's just so amazing to hear them scream and squeal and run and be like, ah, you know? So my one in particular, I got four girls, in case you don't know, I got four girls and one in particular, I love to scare. Like I just love it because she genuinely gets scared. I know y'all are thinking like, this guy's terrible, right? But I love to scare because she like, like just actually feels it. So anyways, I go scare her, okay? I turn the corner, one of my daughters jumps out from behind the door and goes, boo, to me. And I'm like, ah, like that. And she goes, ha, karma, Right? She's like, what is she saying? You deserve that. You got what was coming. Are you going to scare me? You going to treat me bad? Well, welcome, you know, like karma. Now, some of y'all are going like, okay, I don't use that word. But how many times does somebody that you don't like at your job or at your school and they trip or they fail to get the promotion or they whatever and you're like, <laughs> karma, right? You know it, right? You're like, yeah, you got what you deserved. That's right. It was coming to you. You were always mean. You were always a terrible boss. You were always whatever. Karma, right? You get what you deserve. But that's not what, that's not at all what Christianity is talking about, right? It's not workspace. What's the biblical concept of you reap what you sow? And it's the idea, man, that what we're doing is, is based on a totally different paradigm. It's not based on our good works. It's not based on what we do. It's a response to the God who is love. It's a response to the God who forgives. It's a response to the God who is. It's not according to us only. God calls us to do certain things and we sow in certain things, but it's based on a relationship with him and not on our good works, our good deeds. I had somebody illustrate this, I think, in my mind. I went to lunch with somebody, and they were coming from, this person was coming from not a Christian perspective, but wrestling through what is truth, what is life, how do I process things in life. And 
One of the really things that stood out to me is this. This person goes, listen, I, I hear Christians all the time. Whenever something that is good and it happens in their life, they're like, man, isn't that amazing? Look at what God did. Isn't, isn't God awesome? Like, man, praise the Lord. God's so good. And he said, but whenever something bad happens, they just go silent. It's like God isn't even there. So God gives you good but not bad. And so he was, this person was just processing it with me, and I was like, that's fascinating. Yeah, I hear, I hear you. Like, that is the case. But why is that the case, and why do we sometimes leave it out? I think it's because we forget the meta narrative of Scripture, the big picture of Scripture. So we started to walk through that. And I just wanted you to see the difference in paradigms. One is you do good to receive good. You do bad, so you receive bad. The other one is, no, 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 there's a God. He, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. God created everything. It was a creator. He created everything. It was beautiful. It was good. And then he created Adam and Eve, these humans in a garden. He said, man, this is awesome. I'm very pleased with all of this. And what happens? Adam and Eve rebel against their creator. They choose to do something against his will. And so what happens? Sin enters the picture. Death enters the picture. Spiritual death and physical death. And all of a sudden there's this this chasm between God and man. But that's not the whole story. In the fall, you know what else took place? The entire creation broke. It was broken. It was fallen. It had death and destruction and all kinds of things. And so bad things happen on earth to both good and bad people. That's the framework. So, so God said, hey, I created everything. It was good. But then the fall occurred. And then God said, I'm not going to leave you there. I'm going to send my one and only son. And his name is Jesus. And Jesus is going to come and he's going to substitute his life for yours, for everyone who would believe in him. And so his righteousness now becomes your righteousness. His, the, the Bible talks about that we get new hearts, that we become righteous because he is righteous. But not only that, he doesn't just come to save us, to forgive us, to sustain us. He says, hey, listen, there's a lot of brokenness in this world. And it's going to continue. But I'm going to send my son again. He's going to come back and he's going to right all the wrongs. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That's the paradigm that you need to import here. Not if I do good, I'll receive good. If I do bad, I'll receive bad. No, 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 no. God is in the picture. And it's his paradigm, not ours. We're not on a road by our, or on an island by ourselves. We're in this picture with a God. And so the Bible says that good and bad will fall on everyone. It says that in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And so this, it's a fascinating question. Like, why do we talk about good and then not bad? And it's creation, forward instrument, restoration. But I want you to think about this. Let's just get personal. There's a girl that I knew in college She's beautiful, bright blue eyes. Her name was Amy Powell. She grew up a missionary kid in another country. Her parents served faithfully to share the gospel with people. 
And she went to college with us, so she moved stateside. A lot of internationals came to the college I was at, missionaries from all over. And she went through college, went across internationally, came back to the States to teach. She's 25 years old. She hops in her car, drives. Somebody runs into her and kills her. Instantly, she died. There's a newspaper article about it. We heard about it. We were praying, you know, seeing how everybody was doing, family, all those things. And what's the picture? Did she do something bad and now she's receiving death? No. The sun rises on the good and the bad, the just and the unjust. We live in a broken, fallen world. It's a different paradigm. It's a paradigm that God set up. It's due to the fall that these things happen, right? That's the picture. And so what does the belief of biblical principle of sowing and reaping, what does that mean? It means that we sow a lot of things with the hopes of a good life, right? But it's different in that we aren't receiving it because we did good. Instead, we have new hearts. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us. And now we carry out good. We sow into the Spirit and we reap eternal life. It's two different things. We have a new heart, a new mind. It's totally different than karma. But I I, want to get back to the verse, okay? Because here's the thing. Paul is using the principle here in the context of money, of cash, of giving. So he's using this idea of reaping and sowing when it comes to our finances, when it comes to our money. So let's look at it again. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So the word sparingly is the idea of little or tight-fisted. So it's this picture of a person who, man, instead of planting a lot of seed or all of their seed, they're going, what's my future? What's ahead? I I don't know that I'm afraid to plant it all. I'm afraid to put it all. I'm going to hold on to my stuff. I'm going to hold on to what I have because I don't know what's coming. And so they they sparingly plant seeds, and then they receive a sparing counter, right? That's the picture. They will also reap sparingly. Ambrosiaster, so from 400 AD, he wrote commentary on this verse, and this is what he says. Paul is referring to misers. If you don't know what that word is, think Ebenezer Scrooge, okay? Paul is referring to misers when he talks about people who sow sparingly. He says this here because the Corinthians had promised to send something and had subsequently backtracked. What's the context? Remember, we talked about this the last couple of weeks. Paul, this is his third letter to the church of Corinth. And he's writing this letter in the aftermath of a conflict. And he's saying, hey, I love you. I'm here with you, but I want you to consider these things. And he presents all of these different things, right? And so here's the picture. They started an initiative, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, okay? Hey, I want you to give to the church of Jerusalem. And then what happens? They had this conflict with Paul. They did a risk assessment, so to speak, and they go, I don't know, we don't know if we can trust Paul anymore. 
He's not as impressive in person. He doesn't speak well. He's not rich. He's less than. And then we've got these, 2 Corinthians talks about super apostles who are rich. They speak really well. Everything they got going for them status-wise. And so they've got all these question marks on Paul. And they're all saying, Paul's not a real apostle. Like, you don't need to follow him. You need to follow us. So what does Paul do? He writes a letter and he says, hey, I know we've had a mess of a relationship lately. And I know you feel like this is a risk. But I'm coming back to you again. And I'm saying, you said you were going to give to this initiative, to this collection. I want you to continue with that. We've worked this out. You've repented. We're on good terms. Don't sow sparingly. Be generous. That's what he's doing. He's literally coming to them saying, hey, I'm just reminding you what you promised. Continue in it. Continue in it. That's the picture. And then he says, so he says, reap bountifully. If you sow in bountifully, what's the idea there? It's the opposite of sparingly. It's generous. It's open-handed. It's saying, God, I'm here and I'm open to whatever you're doing and however you're working. And I want to sow in bountifully. So if you're generous with your money, you will reap generously. Now listen, this is abused in so many ways. People will take verses like this and passages in the Bible and they'll go, ROI, return on investment, right? Like he says, if you sow in bountifully, man, you're going to reap bountifully and my life is going to be amazing. Like I'm going to have, I'm not going to name all the cars, but you you get it. Like I'm going to have a lot. It's not that. What is he trying to capture? What is Paul capturing in this letter? I think it's like what Jesus says in Matthew. This is an incredible verse. Listen to this. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. That's the picture that I think he's trying to. So let me, let me dive into this for a second. How many of you, like, man, you love a good treasure hunt video TV series? Indiana Jones, if we're going to go way back, Goonies. Some of you are like, what are you talking about? National treasure. I'm, I'm going up the ranks. Outer Banks. Come on. You like a good treasure. I heard Outer Banks. Okay. Uh, you like a good treasure hunt story, right? So what's the picture here? He's saying there's a, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So let me give you a present day example of this in a totally different world, in a totally different concept than this. I'll never forget when Bitcoin became super popular, okay, in my world anyways. I started hearing about it all the time. I had guys who attend, right? They're like, hey, can, can I grab lunch with you? I'm like, sure. Like, what are we going to talk about? He goes, we're going to talk about Bitcoin. <laughs> and I was like, I don't even know what that is. Let's do it. So we sit down and I've had people sit down with me. Listen, pastor, you need to cash all your savings in. Bitcoin is the way to go. It's the new digital currency. I mean, just feeding it to me. Tell me all this. I was like, well, I don't really have that much savings for one, <laughs> but two, like I'm just listening. Okay, I hear you. So I start looking into it. All right, I look into Bitcoin. This is years and years ago. And I read two stories. And one was a single guy who had a home. He sold his house 
and all of his stuff and moved into his car because he cashed into Bitcoin. I think it was $273,000 he put in early on. He ended up a multi-millionaire and sold it. Okay? So that's one story. What's the picture there, though? The picture is this guy who says, I see something that could be very good, very valuable, and I'm going to sacrifice and risk it all. My house, my job, my everything, and I'm going to cash into this with the hopes that I will reap a huge harvest, a huge benefit. It was a sacrifice. It was a huge risk. He could lose it all. There's another story. Family. Three, I think three daughters. They were married, had, had a wife. They cashed in. They sold everything, even their clothes. Got a van, traveled around, cashed in a Bitcoin. Multi-millionaires. There was a ton of risk involved. That's the picture. But it's not about Bitcoin. What's the picture? It's the picture of the joy that we have in the gospel. Think about it. You finally get a picture one day. I've had this day. Maybe you have too, or maybe you haven't yet, and I hope you do. But one day you are going to meet Jesus, and some of you have. And he has said, hey, come follow me. It's not about this life. You don't hold on to your stuff. You don't hold on to your status. You don't hold on to your righteousness because you really don't have any. You are a broken individual, and I've got more than you could ever imagine. I want you to consider my son. I want you to follow him. I want you to give up everything and walk and trust me with your life, with your finances, with your relationships, with everything. That's the picture. You cash in everything to follow him because you realize that what you're purchasing, what you're buying into, what you're living is greater than anything else in the world. Do you know that people made fun of the guy who sold all of his stuff and cashed into Bitcoin? Do you know that students, as you walk with Jesus, as you say, hey, I'm all in for Jesus, there are going to be times when you make a decision to follow Christ and people are going to make fun of you about it. It's going to be uncomfortable at your job, at your sporting event. Wherever it is, there are moments I can remember in high school where I knew a guy came up to me and he said, I heard you're some kind of Jesus freak now. And I used to like party like crazy with this guy. And I said, yep. He goes, stop all the act, come party with me tonight. And I said, no, I'm not doing it, man. And he made fun of me in front of all my friends. I'll never forget, we were literally in Chick-fil-A, right? And it didn't matter to me. Because ultimately, I knew what I was buying into. I knew what was truly life. That's the picture. Man, we have cast all in for Jesus. I love that. All right, let's keep going to the text. Because I think what you're going to see, as he's talking about sowing and reaping, he's not so much talking about the amount as he is the manner and the heart and the spirit behind being generous. Watch this. Verse 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Can I just jump to that last part of that verse? That's an incredible statement. For God loves a cheerful giver. 
How many times do you see that God loves in the Scriptures? This is significant. Part of the reason I think that it says this is because it's a reflection of who God is. God is a giver. He's the greatest giver. He's the ultimate giver. And when he sees his reflection in others, God loves it. And that sounds weird, right? But it's not because God is perfect. He's holy. There's no one like him. So when he sees his perfection in others, he's like, man, I love this. This is so good. They're open-handed. They're not tight-fisted. They're not holding on to their wealth. They're not holding on to their image. They're not holding on to their life. They are all in. They are cheerful givers. It's a representation that they believe the gospel, that they believe in life. It's incredible. Let's go back to it. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. What does that mean? It means it's a personal decision between you and God. And then I love this. He says, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Somebody else phrases it this way. Not motivated by sad feelings or pressure. What is he saying? He's saying, I want you to engage I am telling you that you need to give. I am telling you that you need to pray about this. But I'm not saying in the sense of pressure and I'm going to emotionally drive you to this. As a matter of fact, think about the context. Let's go back to the context of the letter. Paul and the church of Corinth just got through a really big conflict. There was a lot of questioning. There was a lot of risk around Paul. And he's writing another letter to say, hey, I think we worked all this out. I think we're okay. I think we're good. But I want you to hear this. I'm giving you time. He says, I want you to consider how much you would give to this collection for the church of Jerusalem. Why does that matter? He's saying, actually, I'm coming. Titus is coming. He's going to receive this money from you so that you can give. So I'm giving you a heads up in advance right now. Hey, you said you would do this. Now carry it out. I don't want to show up or have Titus show up last second and be like, hey, where's the money? And everybody scrounds around. They feel all this pressure to give all of a sudden. He's saying, no, no, I'm planning in advance for you. Consider being generous. Don't be sparing. Be bountiful. So he's giving them the heads up. He's saying, hey, I want to give you time to process and to pray over this. And so I I want you to just turn your attention to this video. We've got a story of somebody in grace. Music has always been such a huge part of my life. Serving at church is such a great intersection where I love music and I love Jesus, and those two things just really come together so well in that space. The times that I felt closest to the Lord were during times of of playing worship. I felt like there's just something happening on a different level there. I'm Greg Mikesell, and this is my wife, Kristen. Uh, We've been a part of Grace now for a little over a year after uh, being at our previous church for about 25 years. 
Uh, I help to serve on the worship team by playing guitar. Kristen is uh, helping out as a coach for children's ministry. And we've also got three children and they're all involved in either serving in children's ministry or in uh, some of the student and young adult ministries as well. It brings me such joy to uh, worship over the weekend together with my family and just to feel like this is a home for us and this is a place where uh, we're really growing and being challenged in our walk with the Lord and um, it's become definitely the highlight of the week for our family. Not too much sauce or else it gets very mushy. So don't add more, just make it thinner. As we're going through the, uh, the good initiative uh, materials, we've been spending a lot of time praying. We want to make sure that we're still challenging ourselves and, and making sure that our giving impacts our, our day-in, day-out decisions. So that can mean how much we give on a regular basis. It can mean one-time giving. And that's one of the things I love about the Good Initiative is that it's not so much about the dollar amount. It's not about the percentage. It's really about trying to get everybody involved. When we talk about 100% participation, I'm, I'm really challenging my kids to, you know, with your allowance, let's participate in this. With your paycheck at work as a teenager, this is something that we're called to do as a family. And, and I've seen a joy in their hearts as they've begun to do that as well. I think learning that discipline from an early age has been something that has just become part of them. And um, it's been really neat to see the excitement in their faces too, that they get to be a part of this. All right, we're doing cheese and then the pepperoni or pepperoni and then the cheese. That's the big discussion. And from our standpoint, when we were going through the time of, of prayer and kind of the Bible study through this, I was actually looking beyond just our, our checkbook. Uh, you know, I want to make sure that we are open to what God is telling us to do with also our, our time and even where we live. As I've been praying more, I do feel like the Lord just is calling me to to have open hands with it all and really just to submit that decision to him. He owns the house, he owns the kids, he owns everything. And so we want our life with the Lord and with his people to be like, not just a piece of the pie, but the whole pie. And um, I think God calls us to do that in different ways. And right now we're trying to figure out what that exactly means, but it's just not something where we wanna show up on Sunday. We want it to be central to our lives. When it comes to our time and our money, we want to make sure that we are investing in the church. Grace is a very healthy, strong church. And what we've even noticed just in being a part of Grace for the last year is we get so much more out of serving and giving. And so once we become a part of a community and God has really changed us, then we can proclaim the good to all of Central Florida because we've become a part of this process. I think it is no surprise that the Lord is really using Grace Church to be a beacon of hope and to be a refuge for our community. I'm so excited just to be a part of what God's doing. You know, I mean, He's the one who's orchestrating all of this and He's revealing to us along the way how we can be a part of all of that. It just brings so much satisfaction, I think, and deep contentment in life knowing um, that we're making a difference in really important things that are eternal. So a couple things I love about this video. One is it's not like ha, super emotional. These are just, this is a normal family. 
And that all they're saying is, is that we're engaged in the mission. Like our hope is that we would do good and that our church would do good and that we would carry out the mission for Christ. I, I love that. Let's keep going to verse 8. So he says this. This is the last verse. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. I want to ask you a question, okay? And I want you to apply it not just to the current context of finances. I want you to apply it to your home. I want you to apply it to your job. I want you to apply it in every aspect of your life. And here's the question I want to ask you. What if we lived from abundance and not for abundance? Think about that. What if we lived from abundance and not for abundance? We were at, we had men's theology this past week, and it was, it was, it was awesome. We had a great conversation, and one of the things I shared with them is that as a dad, I came home that week, on, it was like a, a Tuesday. I got home, it was late, and I literally went straight to my bedroom, laid down on the bed, just kind of stared at the ceiling. I don't know if you ever have a day like that. But I just stared at the scene. So many of you people are smiling right now. Mom or dad, right? And my kids came in. They want something from me. Jean came in. She wanted something. And literally in my mind, I was going, I don't want to engage at all right now. Leave me alone. That was my first thought. And then I thought, this isn't according to my own strength. I'm not here for myself. And so I prayed, God, would you give me the strength and the energy and whatever it is to continue through my day and engage with my kids to be present with them. And it was this moment where I'm going, I can't do it, only he can. That's the paradigm shift. It's a relationship with the God who is able. Do you see that? To make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, God is able to provide peace, hope, joy, life, forgiveness because we need it so often and so much, right? He says, I'm able to provide all that is necessary. It's interesting. He uses the word sufficiency. I think he's playing on stoic thought in their time. And here's the idea that you are self-sufficient. We always think as Christians, that's a terrible thing. It's not if your self-sufficiency is connected to the God who is able. What is he saying? He's saying, I have all resources, I have all power, and I will be enough for you. Go, serve, give, live, sacrifice your life for the sake of the mission. That's what he's saying. He's saying, consider in all of this, don't hold on to your stuff, don't hold on to your life. Consider what? Consider the fact that there is a God and he's able. He's able to do whatever. He's able to do it however. I I love this inner working. Listen to this. It says, God who is able to give you everything you need. And then watch the last part of the phrase. So that you may abound in every good work. We receive so that we can give. So we are constantly receiving from the Lord and from others and from the church and from encouragement and from the Bible and from prayer. And as we receive those things, we give back. We give and we serve and we live 
according to the gospel for the sake of his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for who you are. God, we thank you that you are a God who is able. I just wanna give everyone in this room uh, just a moment of space to go to the God who is able. If you've got, man, you're tired or burned out or depressed or scared about the future, that you would just go to God right now in prayer. Go to the God who is able and ask for his help. Do it right now. God, I lift up these individuals and these families and these students who are in this room. God, that whatever they're facing, wherever they are with you, God, that they would see a God who is able, that they would see a God who is good, and that they would trust you with their life. God, would you provide the encouragement and the grace that you say abounds at all times and in every way. Lord, we love you and praise you.